morning, um, and I'm going to pray for her as we get started. Father, we are just so grateful to be here, so thankful for your word. Um, sorry, I'm out of breath. I just ran up the stairs. <laughs> oh, man. Um, but I just praise you so much uh, for Rachel's willingness to get up here. Um, it is it is a step of faith. Um, Lord, we never feel um, like we can ever expound the depths of your riches in one little 20 minute talk. And so, uh, thank you for how you have spoken to her. Thank you for how, uh, you have woven this even into her own story and, and, um, you know, penetrated even her heart as she studied. And now she gets to share that with us. So, uh, give us, um, listening hearts and ears, um, we pray that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts so we can truly understand uh, what Romans is is teaching us today. Uh, thanks that your spirit is alive and active and moving in and among us uh, today. And so we're just grateful that uh, we get to come and hear what you have for us this morning through Rachel. So we do pray that she feels empowered by your spirit. We do pray for calm nerves. We pray for a clear mind a clear heart, um, as she communicates the truth that you've uh, given to her today. So we love you and, uh, we give you this time in Jesus name. Amen. All right. Good morning. Good morning. Um, last week, Jan did a great job of um, teaching us uh, about the cultural context, the historical context of Romans. Um, I will talk a little bit about that today as we open up the first half of Romans 1. Um, so I'm just going to start here. I'm going to start with reading Romans 1, 1 to 7. I've broken it up into kind of sections here. So I'm going to read from the ESV version, Romans 1, 1 to 7. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Wow. So what is Paul telling here in, these, in this one long sentence in seven verses? He's telling us a lot, and I'm going to try to unpack it for us. So Paul is opening his letter to the Church of Rome describing who he is and what his goal of this letter is intended to be. At the writing of this letter, Paul has not yet visited Rome. He's writing the letter while in Corinth, so he doesn't know the recipients of the letter personally. The Roman church um, probably did hear about Paul's faith, but they have yet to meet. Maybe we can think about how we would introduce ourselves to people who don't know us. 
Um, maybe last week you've met your women's Bible study group for the first time and you shared a bit about yourself. So let's look here how Paul describes himself to people who don't know him personally. So he first calls himself a servant of Christ Jesus. The Greek term used here is doulos, which means one who is subservient to and entirely at the disposal of his master or a slave. Throughout the Old Testament, the Hebrew word ebed is used here to provide for an indentured servant to voluntarily become a bond slave of his master whom he loved and respected. So the slave here or the servant decided to continue to be his master's servant out of a good relationship he had with his master. So Paul here declares that he's a slave of Christ. His actions and motives are not to serve himself or to please man. It is solely based on his service to Jesus. The Old Testament prophets also called themselves servants of the Lord. So there's also an honored notion to this term. John Piper says, Paul here is declaring that he is bought by Christ, owned by Christ, and ruled by Christ. So he pleases Christ alone. Paul is laying the groundwork for us here so that his readers know that he serves Christ Jesus in the power with which Christ Jesus serves him, so that it is Christ that gets the glory and not Paul. Next, Paul describes himself as an apostle. He's been called. So this points to somebody else and not himself, meaning Paul didn't choose to be an apostle. It was Christ who chose him and gave him this task. The word apostle means someone who's been sent, someone who has been officially commissioned to a position or a work, and someone who has directly seen the risen Christ. Because of his calling, he was set apart for the gospel of God. He has one goal and one purpose in mind, which was to share the good news of Jesus to those who were around him. And in this particular letter, particular letter it is to those in Rome. Paul received a divine calling. Jesus spoke directly to him to bring salvation to a Gentile nation. And in verse two, Paul tells us that this gospel he is preaching was promised through the Holy Scriptures beforehand by prophets. So while Paul was a Pharisee persecuting Christ's followers before his conversion on the Damascus Road, this is not a new religion that he's preaching. He is sharing the continuation of what was already promised in the Old Testament. Some have argued that Christianity cannot be true because it's, man it's a man-made religion that existed in recent times. But here Paul refutes that. Paul here is telling us, no, I'm not telling you anything new. This message was promised to us long ago, even before Christ was born. But it is in his death, in his life, death, and resurrection that this promise is revealed to us. It's a fulfillment of the promise the prophets had already written about. So who is this Christ that Paul is talking about? Well, in flesh, he's the descendant of David. Jeremiah 23, 5 tells us, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness, 
A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness on the earth. Jesus came from the line of David. I won't get into the genealogy here, but he came to earth through a virgin birth by the Holy Spirit. Jesus is a real human being. He was man. He had to be man if he was to represent us to the Father. He had flesh. He knows us. He bled when he was cut. He experienced suffering, rejection, and felt forsaken by the Lord on the cross. He is God who humbled himself to become a lowly man so that we can know him in the flesh. And furthermore, in Genesis 3.15, says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Shortly after Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God promises that there will be a person who will crush sin and Satan. So all of the Old Testament points to this coming Messiah who will bring salvation to those who will live by faith. And verse four says, was declared to be son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus' union with God the Father and, God, and God's power was revealed to us when Jesus rose from the dead. The power of God rests upon this, that death did not have the final say. And the Son of God returned to his union with God the Father. Jesus did not become God's son at the moment of his resurrection. He was always God's son. It was only revealed to us at his resurrection. So Jesus is not a mere man who became God's son. He was always God's son who became man at his birth. An earthly example that I thought of um, is this, that when it comes to Christmas, my kids love their presents. But these gifts that um, may have been purchased many months, maybe years before this Christmas day, but it's only on Christmas day when they open these presents are these presents revealed to them? They wait with anticipation for Christmas morning, knowing that they are opening something that had been longing for. And this is an expression of a parent's love for their child. The parent's love for the child always existed before the opening of these gifts. And just as the story of redemption always existed before it was revealed to us by the Holy Spirit when Christ was resurrected. And in verse five to seven, it says, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. So all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So in this revealing of the son to us by the power of the Holy Spirit, we, re we receive grace, which is God's unmerited favor towards us, an, apostle, an apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for God's glory in all the world. So this term obedience of faith, it means trusting and acting in accordance to God's law, not for a certain outcome or a blessing, but purely because we trust God despite what our outward circumstances may be. Take my Christmas present um, example. Parents, 
generally prefer obedience from their children the first time they're asked to do something. Not after many times they're told and then we're threatening to take away presents. This is not obedience that comes from the heart of trust. It is an outward obedience that comes from the fear of losing presence. The Lord wants our heart and our act of obedience. They come hand in hand. And in my own life, I was confronted with this obedience of faith. As I was preparing for today, I reread some of my old journal entries that I had written when Jacob was undergoing cancer treatment. In one journal entry, I wrote a lofty list of things that I know we would do for the Lord after he healed Jacob. But that was not the plan for us. And so that list, I quickly threw it out the window. And that was an example of not obedience of faith, but obedience because I thought a certain outcome would turn out. But the Lord is patient. And his righteousness that he gives us isn't quickly removed or taken away as quickly as we threaten to take away Christmas presents. And what is the purpose of this obedience of faith? It is for the glory of God to all the world. In the first century AD, Rome was one of the most influential empires of the world which is probably why Paul writes that their faith is being proclaimed in all the world in verse eight. Paul expresses his desire to visit Rome and later in chapters, he will disclose while he has, why he has not yet been able to visit. The goal of his visit was there to be mutual encouragement and for further growth of the gospel. Paul was aware of this dissension in Rome, the ethnic Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians did not agree on how to practice their faith. He reminds us that God's grace is available to all in hopes of bringing unity to the church. Here I'm challenged by Paul's one-track mind for the gospel. I often have varying motives in my interactions. I like to be liked. I want others to think well of me. And as I prepare for this, I want you to take away a good nugget that Rachel shared with you. <laughs> Oftentimes, the gospel is not my motivation, but I'm reminded here that we need to encourage each other in the gospel. And we have wonderful opportunities here at New Life. We have this woman's Bible study, and we have many, and we have home group, and we have many other service opportunities where we get to have the gospel at the, at the, as the centrality of why we're doing what we're doing in our service. So Paul here continues on, on verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jews first and also to the Greek. I'm reminded of a story that uh, my late husband, Jacob, she, he has a, a dear grandmother. She's now in her 90s. Um, she only speaks in Korean and my family only speaks in Chinese. So when they met, they really couldn't communicate, but that didn't stop her from sharing the gospel. <laughs> uh, she knew a little, uh, she knew how to write a little bit in Chinese. And so she wrote to them, um, she wrote to them, 
um, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. That was her first communication with them. There was no niceties. How are you? She heard that they didn't know the gospel. They didn't believe the gospel. And she just decided, give me a piece of paper and give me a pencil and I'm going to write to them. And that's what she did. And I was nervously anticipating my family's reaction. Um, but even as they recall this interaction with Jacob's grandmother um, in later years, they, remind, they, they remember it fondly. They felt like her faith was so genuine that she didn't care if she was going to be rejected. She didn't care if they thought well of her. She genuinely cared about their soul because if she believed that the gospel was real, she needs to share it. And, and she did. And I'm often challenged by, by her when I think about her. She modeled after Paul here because she's not ashamed of the gospel. And likewise, Paul here is so motivated and driven by the gospel that he would share it with anyone who would hear it. As I wrestle with that in my life, I often am not bold, I'm not direct. Uh, I wonder how many neighbors of mine do know that I am a Bible-believing Christian. But nonetheless, as Christ has redeemed us, we are called to bear witness to his image through everyday interactions because the Lord intercedes through everyday small moments. In our daily vocation, we are called to act by faith, whether it's speaking Jesus's name outwardly or acting in faith through practical means. And so now finally we come to verse 17, which is what many commentators call the thesis of the whole book of Romans. For it is for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So this verse references Habakkuk 2.4. See, the enemy is puffed up. His desires are not upright, but the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. R.C. Sproul in his sermon on Romans 1.17 tells us that Martin Luther, um, who was the father of, our, of the Reformation, his eyes were opened by this verse. He says, righteousness that God in his grace was making available to those who would receive it passively, not those who would achieve it actively, but that would receive it by faith and by which a person could be reconciled to a holy and righteous God. That means that this righteousness that we all desperately need to find acceptance with God comes from God. It is God's own righteousness that he provides to us freely in the gospel. R.C. Sproul explains the word dikaios, which didn't mean to make righteous, but rather to regard as righteous, to count as righteous, to declare as righteous. For Luther, he said, you mean here, Paul isn't talking about the righteousness by which God himself is righteous, but the righteousness that God gives freely by his grace to people who don't have righteousness of their own. 
And so Luther said, you mean the righteousness by which I will be saved isn't mine? It's not ours. It's what he called an alien righteousness, a righteousness that belongs properly to somebody else. It's a righteousness that is outside of us, namely the righteousness of Christ. So the righteousness that in which we are saved is not our own that can be, be achieved by any of our works because it's never righteous enough. It is solely and completely on the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which we must hold on to by trusting faith. The term here from faith for faith can mean that it is faith from start to finish. There are other commentators who have uh, varying views, but I will share one here. So we become Christians. We receive God's righteousness through faith, right? So we became, we become Christians by faith. And having received this faith, we enter a king, the kingdom of God and we continue to live by faith. In fact, we will end our Christian journey here on earth by faith. That is from faith addresses the saving faith. And then when Paul says to faith, that is living daily by faith. The walking by faith moment to moment to the end of our lives. I imagine here someone who's skydiving. They put on their parachute and when they jump out of the plane, they need a rest solely on the operation of this parachute. They have to trust this parachute. So when he jumps out of the plane, he must continue to trust this parachute and activate the parachute in midair. If one day he decided, no, I'm not going to use the parachute today. I'm just going to try to fly. That would be foolish. No matter how hard he tries to flap his arms, he would not become a bird. It will not be sufficient because he's man and he cannot fly. It would not save his life. But if he trusts in his parachute, he will find safe landing. And likewise, in our fallen nature, we can never earn our righteousness. We need to trust the parachute. We trust the gospel. And so we also see laced throughout the Old Testament are people who acted in faith. Last, um, last year, we, we saw how David acted in faith. And he called himself righteous, not because he was sinless, but because he had a heart that trusted God. And we see Abraham in Genesis 15, 6, says he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. We are told that Abraham believed the Lord and that was his righteousness. Abraham was promised to be the father of many nations, yet he was without any children. But Abraham obeyed God's call to leave his home by faith to seek the heavenly city of God. Hebrews 11.8 tells us, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Abraham's righteousness was declared before any display of his good works. Rather, it was his faith and obedience to God. Abraham trusted God despite what his circumstances were and continued to live by faith. It was his trusting the Lord rather than his good works that counted him righteous. 
So Paul writes this epistle to the believers in Rome in hopes of unifying them, in hopes of unifying the Gentile and the Jewish believers. He wants to gain their support as he travels to Spain to further his preaching of the gospel. So it remains that the gospel is the centrality of Paul's letter and his life. And as I've wrestled with this passage, I want to encourage you with this, that as the apostle Paul encourages Roman readers, our faith is a gift, a gift from God. And it declares us righteous. And it is by this faith we have obedience. It is two sides of the same coin. We don't earn our righteousness, which means we don't lose our righteousness because we are saved by faith through grace alone. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your work on the cross, that in it we have the power of the gospel revealed to us in you. And thank you for our brother Paul, who so succinctly displayed your saving work in his life for us to read today. Would you allow that to penetrate our hearts and minds so that we may continue to live by faith for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.